Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Good morning, church. It is good, it is good to be here with you. I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Vince, who is our usual teaching pastor, he'll be back next week. If you're just joining us, we're going to continue our study through the book of Hebrews this morning. So far, we've seen in Hebrews the supremacy of Jesus, that he is better than everything else. So far, over the weeks, we've seen he's better than the prophets, than the angels, than Melchizedek, than the high priest, than Moses, than the Sabbath, than Abraham, than the Old Testament, than the law, than the early holy place. Over and over, we've seen it. The artwork up here reminds us of that. This is the artwork that Andrew did. Each jewel represents something that Jesus is better than that we've seen here in the book of Hebrews. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus is better than the old sacrificial system. That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that cleanses us from our sin was a once-for-all event. Not something that needed to be repeated over and over and over again like the old system. Jesus is better than anything else, and then better than everything else. Do you believe that? (laughs) Do you believe that Jesus is better than any other belief system by which we attempt to prove our worth, or to be right by God if there is a God, (laughs) or to make sense of this life? Do you believe that Jesus is not just one way among many, but is the only way? He's better than life itself. I ask these questions sincerely because I am certain the answers vary in this room. Where do you land? Would you say that you're curious about Jesus and want to know more? Would you say that you're all for Jesus, especially for other people, but you'd rather keep an open mind? Or maybe you're especially drawn to the rhythms of the church, the church calendar and the people that go to church. Maybe it reminds you of growing up, and church produces good people. You don't mind associating with Christians, but this like, relationship with Jesus that people talk about is foreign to you. And it certainly doesn't make sense why people would cling to Jesus even in the midst of suffering. Do you identify with that one? Or maybe you're enraptured with Jesus. You genuinely love him and want to know him more. You're not perfect, you know that, but you're eager for your life to become more and more consistent with your love for him. Where's your heart? And not just where you think somebody else wants your heart to be. Where is it actually? I think it's important for us to examine our hearts and and ask ourselves this question. So let me ask it again, but I'm going to rephrase it in, in two ways. One, do you have an assurance that you're right standing with God? has been taken care of forever in the person and work of Jesus alone rather than the good stuff you do or the bad stuff you try not to do? Do you have that assurance? Do you, and here's a second. Do you have a heart conviction that Jesus' death and resurrection 
2,000 years ago was a once-for-all event in time and space, and it forms the basis for why we can have a relationship with God. Do you have that conviction? The beginning of the next chapter in Hebrews chapter 11, the author uses one word to describe such assurance and conviction. Faith. Such assurance and and conviction are proofs of a genuine faith. So, do you have such a faith? Yes? No? Unsure? You see, like us, it seems the original audience of Hebrews would have given varied answers also. There were likely Christians who converted from Judaism, as well as Jews who were not yet converted, but were going through all the motions of what it meant to be a Christian. The Jewish Christians had genuine faith. The Jews in their midst did not. And even though we may have been in the same community together, and even though they were in the same community together, the difference spiritually between these two groups of people was vast. It was dramatic. No matter how you answer those questions earlier that I asked, our text today will be relevant. The author speaks to both of these groups, no matter where you fall. And he pulls no punches. I don't know if you've read this text yet, the end of chapter 10. We might get uncomfortable, but hang in there. This is God's word. And it speaks to us today for our good and God's glory. See, part of my job this this morning, I believe, is to get out of the way of this text so we can appropriately feel what God may be speaking to our hearts. And it's going to vary depending on how you answer those questions early, depending on where your heart is at. So with that, please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 26. Hebrews is toward the back of your Bible. First and second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. If you hit first and second Peter, you've gone a little bit too far. Our text today, we're going to go through the end of chapter 10. We'll start in verse 26. We'll go through the end of chapter 10, and we're going to tackle it in chunks this morning. So a little bit by little bit. And remember, remember that our text today is coming off the heels of the encouragements we saw last week. There were three of them. Remember what they were? (laughs) Some of us remember what they were. One, draw near to God in confidence. Two, hold fast to our faith. And three, stir each other up to love here in Christian community. These are wonderful benefits for the Christian, benefits grounded in Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. Because Jesus' sacrifice was once-for-all, according to the entire first half of chapter 10, verse 18 reads this, There is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus does not need to die ever again. It is finished. It's done. This is great news for those of us with genuine faith. But there's also a terrifying side to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. Let's read about it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What a change of tone from last week. It changes on a dime. The focus has shifted away from the benefits for believers to something terrifying for a different group of people. 
This different group of people are characterized as deliberately and continually sinning after being exposed to the truth of Jesus as Savior. What does it mean to sin? To sin is to rebel against God. But every one of us in here sins every day, and sometimes we are confessing the same sin over and over. So, is this text therefore describing everyone? No, actually something different is happening here. It characterizes a person in a smaller subset. The person being described here volitionally, intentionally, deliberately, willingly sins in an ongoing manner. This person's life is not characterized by battling and confessing sin, but rather by adopting it. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 6, this person's heart is still enslaved to sin rather than righteousness. You see, a true transformation of the heart by the gospel will necessarily result in and be evidenced by a changed life. But this person's life is completely indistinguishable from the life that they led before they were exposed to the truth of the gospel. The encouragement from the community of believers that we saw back in verse 25 has had no effect in leading this person to greater holiness and a rejection of sin. And as a result, all of the evidence points to a subset of people who lack genuine saving faith. Exposure alone to the truth of the gospel has not resulted in a changed heart. Rather, the gospel has been rejected. For the original audience of Hebrews, the persecution of Christians may have tempted the Jews among them in their midst to return to Judaism and thus fully reject the gospel they heard. No longer could they pretend they didn't know better to go back to Judaism and reject the gospels, perhaps one expression of deliberately and continually sinning that this author may have had in mind. But for us today, if we continually and intentionally go back to the same sin over and over again and do not sense the Holy Spirit's conviction that it is sin, or maybe we disregard the concern of fellow believers expressed to us about that sin, maybe we justify it, maybe we defend it, real red warning flags should be going off like crazy. Having no sense of inward conviction by the Holy Spirit and a disregard for the discipline of the Christian community around you are troubling indications that our God may not be Jesus. We cannot intentionally and continually pursue Jesus and intentionally and continually pursue sin at the same time. This doesn't mean Christians are perfect. We know that. We know we aren't. Christians sin, and we battle unbelief from time to time. But overall, the Christian life is marked by a pursuit of Jesus and a struggle against sin rather than an intentional and continual pursuit of sin. Does that make sense? Our life is to be characterized not by the intentional pursuit of sin— If it is, it may be evidence pointing to the frightening possibility that our hearts have rejected the gospel that our heads know. The issue is never having trusted Jesus. And and the, the issue being talked about here is not that we've trusted Jesus and now we've lost something. 
The issue is never having trusted Jesus in the first place. It's not a call to be fearful your heart may fully reject what it has already accepted. Does that make sense? We're having to walk a line here. Do you see that line that we're having to walk? You see, our head knowledge, even if it is the right knowledge, isn't enough to produce a changed life. Right knowledge about Jesus is necessary, but it alone doesn't save us. Some of us in this room know a whole lot about the Bible. Maybe we've grown up in the church, and we've listened, and we've absorbed the teachings. Maybe we've educated ourselves, we've read the right books, we've listened to the right podcasts. But if our hearts remain unmoved, if we've never surrendered to the grace of God and trusted Jesus to save us, rather than our knowledge or anything else, then our hearts are still dead. And we are on the hook to pay ourselves the penalty for our sin. This is because, as the end of verse 26 puts it, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. The logic is clear. If Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and if he is rejected as Savior, there's no option C, there's no option B, there's no recourse. The full consequences of sin must be paid personally by us in their totality. And what are those consequences? As verse 27 puts it, a fearful or terrible expectation of judgment. A judgment described as a consuming fury of fire. Do you see what happened? The joyful benefits of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for believers, the joyful benefits, have turned to terror for the one who rejects him. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Because the gospel has been rejected, the life-giving benefits of the gospel have not been applied. But rather, judgment is to be expected, a consuming fury of fire. Seems a little intense, doesn't it? Surely some of these people are essentially good people. They, They do good things, even if their hearts reject the gospel. How bad could this judgment really be? Well, let's read on to find out. We are about to read one of the heaviest and harshest warning passages in all of Scripture. And Vince decided to have me do this passage to be gone this morning. So, thank you, Vince. All right, Uh, let's read this. Verses 28 through 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the Spirit of grace? Here the author is creating an argument from what is a well-known bad thing in order to establish a worse thing. The author's audience knew well that judgment in the Old Testament under the law of Moses to reject God was physical death. An example of this law is in Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you want to look at it. We're not going to this morning, but if you want to look at it at some point. Physical death, capital punishment, is a severe judgment indeed. This is the bad thing. But the author goes on 
in verse 29 to argue that there's a worse judgment than physical death. This judgment is reserved for the one described in verse 26, the one who hears the gospel but whose heart rejects it no matter how good this person seems to be. Why is this, is this deemed worthy of a worse punishment? Verse 29 gives us three answers. First, hearing the truth about Jesus and then rejecting him is equivalent to treating the Savior with contempt and utter lack of respect. This is trampling Jesus, the Son of God, underfoot as one might rub out a used cigarette on the pavement. Or it's as one would trample the grime and the filth and the dirt and the feces underfoot in the streets and byways of those ancient cities. Second, hearing the truth about Jesus and then rejecting him is equivalent to treating his precious blood that was spilled on behalf of believers as commonplace, as nothing special, even as unholy and no different than the blood of anybody else. This is what it means to profane the very blood by which we alone are saved and made holy. And third, hearing the truth about Jesus and then rejecting him is equivalent to outraging or arrogantly insulting the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who testifies about Jesus, who was sent from Jesus, who graciously regenerates our hearts at conversion, who convicts us of sin, who encourages and empowers and assures and seals believers until the day of redemption. These three things, according to the author, qualify for greater punishment than physical death. But what's greater physical punishment than physical death? The implied answer here is a spiritual death. Facing the full consequences of sin without Jesus can only result in one thing, eternal death. I hope this is sobering for us. This certainly isn't a feel-good text. So far, is it? It's heavy But it communicates a reality that must be heard and understood. The danger of hearing the gospel but never accepting it, of being exposed to the truth but never fully committing to it, are real and are extreme. None of this is to be taken lightly. Does anybody come to mind who you think may fit into this group? I used this example a few months ago. A musician I follow, whom I fear may be on this trajectory, comes to mind. He, he assumedly came to faith and was given, perhaps prematurely, the job of a worship leader in a mega church. He became an elder. He was given lots of responsibility. He's given authority. He wrote many good gospel-centered songs, some of which we sing in here. How after some significant trial and heartache, he seems to be on his way out of the faith. Or at least he claims to believe in something that as little resembles the gospel that he once espoused. Does anyone come to your mind? Anybody you know? What about your own heart? Have you examined it? Is it starting to sound too familiar to this group of people? The consequences of rejecting the gospel are real. 
their reality is not dependent on how we feel about them or desire them to be. And unlike the Mosaic law, where the real consequences of physical death were carried out by people, this worse spiritual death is carried out by somebody else. Let's read verses 30 through 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. There's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God himself will carry out the terrible and final consequence of sin. Therefore, it is certain. God promises it. It was this God who was trampled underfoot. It was the blood of this God who was treated as common. It was this God who was outraged. Unlike the comfort and the joy and the peace of being in the hands of the living God with Jesus, being in the hands of the living God with only your sin is absolutely terrifying. Only certain judgment remains. And because it is God who will judge, it will be absolutely just. Let us never underestimate how holy and just God is. His just wrath towards sin far exceeds our understanding. Sin will not be left to endure forever. Does the sin of sexual assault disturb you? God hates it infinitely more. Does the sin of abusing those with less power get you riled up? God hates it infinitely more. Does the sin of discrimination motivate you to action? God hates it infinitely more. This sin that entered this world by the deliberate choice of Adam and Eve and thoroughly corrupted all of God's good creation. Sin that all of humanity inherits. Sin that bends our hearts away from God. Sin that enslaves us to always choose our own desires to our own harm rather than to obedience to a good God. Sin that results in eternal separation from God and an eventual death. But I want us to notice something else about God's character. Notice now how his wrath and justice intermingle with his grace and love. God hates sin so much that he, motivated by love, made a way for people to be back in relationship with him. He sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life we never could, to die the death that we deserve for our sin, to take it away forever. And Jesus rose again three days later to forever break the power of sin and death, a reality that we will fully experience when he comes back again. By God's grace can we be saved through faith in Jesus. This is the gospel, folks. (laughs) Jesus satisfied God's wrath towards sin so we may experience God's grace and love. Do you believe this? Do you trust Jesus to be the only one who can ever save you? Listen, you can't be good enough or compassionate enough or give enough way enough stuff to be saved or to stay saved. 
You are not saved by pretending to play the part of a Christian. Hear this. Trying our best to avoid sin is not the point of this passage. God is not manipulated by the good stuff we do or the bad stuff we don't do. Rather, salvation, genuine faith, is a free gift from God alone. God alone saves. That's grace. We can't earn it. And because we can't earn salvation, we also can't lose it. So Christian, let's be clear on this. This warning passage is not calling you to continually question if you still have genuine faith. Do you hear that? This, that is a miserable thing to continually wrestle with. And I know some of us in here are well acquainted with what that feels like. So let me just briefly encourage you. Salvation depends on God alone. And because God doesn't lose anyone, he will always hold you securely. If God has saved you, he will continue to save you, period. Rather than repeatedly questioning genuine faith, this text in Hebrews is a warning to those who have never trusted Jesus, even though they know about him. If you think you might be in this group of people, this passage should unsettle you and give you pause, to say the least. It calls you to push in rather than just peer in from the fringes. Don't reject the gospel. Ask the questions that are floating around in your head. Identify the things that are giving you hesitation. Investigate the gospel claim that Jesus is better than everything else. The gospel calls us to faith in Jesus and repentance from sin. That call is for you. It's not too late. There still exists a sacrifice for sin if you trust Jesus to be that sacrifice for you. If you sense God may be calling you, maybe drawing you to himself, I urge you to respond. I and many others in this church would love to help you respond. Or just to process what's going on in your head and your heart. Get a hold of me however it's convenient for you. I'll be up front after the service. Come talk to me in person. Fill out that connection card. Drop it in the box. I'll respond to you electronically if you prefer. Send me an email. Whatever works for you because the stakes are unimaginably high. Turning your back on Jesus will result in eternal death. Do you feel the weight of this passage this morning? Let this sit for just a moment. I'm fighting my urges to bring a gospel comfort and care and peace right now because I think that would short-circuit the intent of this passage. I think we need to feel the weight of the warning in this passage first. This might be exactly what you need to hear. Even though it feels hard, if God uses it to draw you to himself, that is God's grace. Lack of faith results in judgment worse than death, which will be carried out by God according to his promise. Don't reject the gospel. For those of us who have a genuine faith, we too need to feel the weight of this warning. But now, the author of Hebrews goes on to supply something else that is sorely needed at this point. Let's read on, verses 32 through 34. 
But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. (laughs) What an incredible contrast with the type of person that was described in verse 26. Instead of continuing to deliberately choose sin after being exposed to the gospel, this new group of people evidenced a very different heart, a heart transformed by the gospel. Consider, consider all the evidence that this author gives us. Because of the gospel, this enlightenment that we read about in verse 32, they endured suffering and being made a public spectacle rather than abandon the gospel. They evidenced selfless love by identifying with other believers who are publicly shamed and by caring for those in prison, which was a lifeline for those in prison, but very dangerous for the caregiver. They revealed hearts no longer entangled in physical stuff by accepting the plundering of their own property with joy. Kids, do you feel joy when your brother or sister or friend takes one of your favorite toys without asking? Mine sure don't. I'd call it like more of a state of extremely aggravated perturbedness. But adults, even if we don't always show it, we kind of feel the same way about our stuff too at times, don't we? So what is the source of the surprising joy? What is it evidence of? What else could it be but evidence of genuine faith, of hearts that have been transformed by the gospel? The gospel produces this sort of fruit in a believer's life. None of this is normal. None of this is natural to fallen humanity. Genuine faith evidences itself in unnaturally changed lives. Faith is all the difference, not us, not us trying hard enough to act the part. So the author of Hebrews reminds his audience of their own proof of their genuine faith as an encouragement to them. And as a lack of faith results in terrible judgment, as we saw in verses 26 through 31, Genuine faith itself results in something very different. Let's read verses 35 through 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Another stark contrast. Judgment in verse 27 is turned to reward in verse 35. The end of verse 34 gives us a clue as to the nature of this reward. It's a better and longer lasting possession, possession than our earthly stuff. The things that make up life around us, what we can see and touch, our comfort, our social standing, do not compose the reward of genuine faith. Rather, genuine faith results in an eternal possession beyond the reach of people and decay. Jesus calls it treasures in heaven in Matthew 6. Let's read what he has to say. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is because of this, for this lasting possession, for this enduring promise by God, for the sake of the gospel, that Christians can lose social standing by enduring public ridicule and identifying with those who are publicly shamed. It is because of this that the Christian, for the sake of the gospel, can sacrifice comfort and security by caring for those in need. It is because of this that the Christian, for the sake of the gospel, is not too attached to physical stuff and can accept the plundering of property with joy. You see, the reward for genuine faith is not contained in social standing or comfort or security or stuff in this life. Unlike some popular teaching, genuine faith doesn't entitle you to a bigger house or financial security or freedom from pain or that relationship or good grades or the right job. Faith's reward is ultimately bigger and better and beyond these things that make up ordinary life around us. And it is because of this that the author urges us to not throw away our confidence in the gospel, this confidence that has led to the incredibly bold expression of genuine faith seen in verses 32 through 34. Don't retreat, but endure, no matter how bad the suffering gets. Continue to live in bold ways that evidence a genuine faith that endures to the end. This is the will of God mentioned in verse 36. An enduring faithfulness to the gospel all the way to the end. Some of us in here are enduring incredible suffering right now. It might look different than it did for the original audience, but it's suffering nonetheless. Your faithfulness to the gospel in the midst of your suffering is evidence of a genuine faith and is a profound example for all of us. It's encouraging. And you are doing exactly what the author of Hebrews is urging all of Christians to do. This endurance is not in vain. In contrast to rejecting the gospel resulting in God's promise of judgment— Enduring God-given faithfulness to the gospel results in God's promise of reward. We can be sure of it. It's based on God's reliable, unfaltering promise. What exactly is this reward? While the author describes it, he actually never specifies explicitly, but it's likely referring to eternal life with God. The reward for genuine faith is an eternally perfect relationship in person with the object of our faith. Jesus himself, the source of all goodness and life and love and joy. What an infinitely better reward than our stuff, isn't it? What an encouragement to faithfully endure suffering. Jesus indeed is better than anything else and worthy of being clinged to even in the midst of our darkest moments of suffering. But there's more. (laughs) The author now builds upon the certainty of this heavenly reward according to God's promise. And he builds upon our faith being united with the object of our faith and writes what we read in verses 37 through 38. Let's read it. 37 through 38. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come 
and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Jesus, the object of our faith, won't be absent from this earth forever. God has promised it. It's no longer just a matter of one day going to heaven, but someday heaven will come to earth. Jesus is surely coming back again soon. Okay, we think, but what do you mean by soon? (laughs) It's been 2,000 years since that was originally written. But the point here isn't that Jesus will come back someday according to our definition of soon, but that he will surely come back at exactly the right time. It's certain he will not remain absent indefinitely. Jesus, the very one whom is the object of the gospel, who is either rejected or accepted, will return. You see, we're living in this in-between time. Jesus gives us new hearts and changes us, and yet we are not yet fully changed, are we? Jesus came and brought the kingdom of God with him, but yet it's not fully here. We're in this awkward in-between time, so how do we live in this tension? The author of Hebrews is clear. We faithfully endure. We're to remain ready for Jesus' return by evidencing a genuine faith that endures and does not shrink back. Our broken world will not always be like this, people. Suffering will not last forever, and it does not have the final say. For the Christian, history isn't cyclical. It doesn't repeat and repeat. It's going somewhere. Jesus will come back and bring to perfect completion what he started. The story will reach a conclusion. Judgment will be carried out and reward will be given based on whether or not we have faith. Jesus is surely coming back again soon. This, this is the glorious hope of all of creation. And now to wrap up this passage, the author has one last strong encouragement for those who have genuine faith. And this time, the author includes himself. Let's read verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We, fellow Christian, are not of those who reject the gospel and thus destined for for judgment and death. Rather, we have genuine faith that results in life. Be encouraged, Christian. The wonderful promises of God are certain, and they are for you. If verses 26 through 31 resulted in anxiety and fear for those who are rejecting the gospel, verses 32 through 39 should inspire in us a trust in Jesus that is deeply filled with gratitude and joy, even as we faithfully endure suffering. We are Christians. By God's grace, this is what we do. This is what believers have done through the ages, and we join their company. But that's what we're going to look at next week. I softballed it for Vince. He better knock it out of the park. (laughs) But for us this morning, let me end here. Let this warning text push you in toward the gospel rather than reject it. And let the encouragement from this text motivate us who have accepted the gospel toward a faithful endurance and suffering and an overflow of gratitude and joy before Jesus, whose once-for-all sacrifice covers us. Let's pray.
God, I pray that you would use this text, which is hard. It doesn't pull any punches. I, I pray that you would use this text to be at work speaking to our hearts this morning. Would you apply it in ways that you know and only you know that we need at the deepest levels? Father, I pray if our hearts have never fully accepted you as Savior, if they've been rejecting you no matter how our life may look, no matter whether we're pretending to be a Christian or we just don't care, I pray that you would break that down. Would you be at work drawing us to, your, our, to yourself, Father? Out of your grace, based on the work that Jesus did on the cross, would you be at work saving us if we have never trusted you? Would these words hit home? Would they bother us for the rest of today? Would they bother us for next week? Until we have come to the point that we realize that you are ultimate objective truth. There's no other. You're gracious and you're good. You're the source of life alone. I pray you be at work doing that, Spirit. I pray for those of us who have accepted you, who do trust you to save us, those of us who still sin, who still may wrestle with the same sin over and over again. I pray you would sensitize our spirit, our, our spirit to your spirit. Convict us of that sin so we may turn from it and be more fully healed. I pray you would sensitize our hearts to fellow Christians who discipline us, who lovingly approach us with things they see in our lives that are inconsistent with a life that's been saved by you. And Father, would you grant us a deep joy in the salvation that's been accomplished for us and that we can't lose. This is all by your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.